It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Last night, uh, for those that are listening via podcast, uh, our students came uh, over to our house. Uh, I have to say, that was one of the most beautiful nights that we've had maybe all year uh, as far as weather-wise. We've had such a string of like 99 degree days. I don't know if you've seen that on your weather app. 99, and then what's the next day? 99. It's like, why doesn't it say 100? At least round it off. But it's been very unusually hot uh, here in Colorado. And yesterday, what was it, like 75 or so? And clear mountain views, it was gorgeous. And, but it was very, very special having you guys uh, there in our back patio. Uh, I just want to say thank you for being a part of that. Uh, just really special semester. Uh, we are headed into our fifth week, which is our final week of our training. And I'm saying this more for the benefit of someone via podcast. I mean, you're like, yes, you don't need to rub it in, Eric. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, oops, so we have uh, a slide that was made for me so I wouldn't forget. It's called the Daily Thunder Forecast. Uh, and uh, as, as far as if I was going to say something that is happening in our midst, I would say uh, the training. That is what's happening. Uh, we're in the middle of our training season. And I think for, for those of I wish we could almost have an open mic and just discuss what it is like to go through a, a training like this because it is very, very special. It's special for us as leadership, and it's also, I know, very special for you guys. Uh, there's something about the body of Christ dynamic and just being away from the busyness of everything that is hard to describe the value of it and the importance of it. You know, we have an online edition of, of this, and yet... I think those of us that are here recognize why Ellerslie has struggled to ever release an online edition because so much of discipleship is personal and there's a personal touch. There's watching people live out their lives. It's actually seeing other people convicted sitting next to you and then you get convicted just watching them process through in their own soul their relationship with God. And so there's something very, very special of this um, synergy that is created in the body of Christ. I know it's God's design. This is the way he, uh, he did it. But um, one of the other things I love about Ellerslie, this is sort of my way of giving an indirect forecast, uh, is I love the fact that it's such a mixture of ages. This, this uh, particular semester didn't have as much of a blend of ages as we typically have. Like if you, would, if you go look at our one-week training, which was right before this, we had, oh, I don't know what it was, you know, like 10, 15 couples uh, in it, uh, whole families will come through, and that's very special. We don't have that as much in this uh, fall semester, but uh, it's not a complaint about uh, you guys. You guys have been tremendous. Uh, it's just unique. Every semester has such a unique personality to it. But uh, guys, I am excited for this final week, and I'm expecting God to do great things. He's very good at bringing the perfect punctuation to the time we spend together. Uh, part 40. Uh, I don't know if you guys enjoy round numbers like I do. I actually like odd numbers for certain things. Like I like sort of waking up in the morning on an odd number, but when it comes to Daily Thunder, I like to have a good round number because it makes me feel like an accomplishment. Like I reached another 10. And 40 is, I mean, not only is it a good number, but it's a God number. I mean, he sort of gets into the number 40, right? And look at that title, guys, The American Hero. Uh, the Americans uh, probably don't deserve as much credit as we give them uh, in World War I because, you know, they hung out in America and they didn't want to get involved. They didn't want to get involved. In the, they didn't want to get involved. And then finally, as we've walked through, you know, the Zimmerman telegram, uh, the unrestricted U-boat warfare that the Germans are going to launch is going to trigger this, uh, you know, catalyst that's going to bring the pacifist Woodrow Wilson into war. And Congress is going to vote unanimously. It's, it's a big deal. Uh, and America is in support of actually going to the war, even though right afterwards, they're going to be in support of never going to a war again. And so, there, which is not actually different than the rest of Europe. Uh, however, the rest of Europe is going to enter into what's called the League of Nations, which is sponsored by Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson is going to create this thing called League of Nations. And remember, he's trying to go down in history as the ultimate peacemaker. And so he has this plan, 
And it's going to ultimately, ultimately become the United Nations, and which is something we're all familiar with. But what's interesting is Congress will not vote to include ourselves. He, it's our president that starts the League of Nations, and America votes to not be a part of it. Uh, because we don't want to, I mean, part of the, what the League of Nations means is if a country is invaded over in Europe, uh, and it's a violation, then all the other countries have to come to its support. Well, America doesn't want to fight foreign wars. We didn't want to fight this one, and so we don't want to fight a future one. So no, we will not engage in the League of Nations. So could you imagine how President Wilson feels? He goes through all this, doesn't look like the great peacemaker, ends up declaring war, and then he comes up with this great idea because he's wanting to look good in the American history books. And for whatever reason, I feel sorry for the guy. He just doesn't look good in the American history books, even though you know he had some good, noble ideas. He's not the one that is the American hero, just in case you're wondering, okay, after all that. The American hero. Uh, I don't know if you guys have a guess of who the American hero is, but there is one character that is considered probably by most people to be the greatest American soldier in World War I. And even throughout the world, many people looked at him like in France, uh, even the marshal of the French military is going to say possibly the greatest civilian soldier in the entire war. And he was an American, which should cause some of your buttons to go poof, 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 you know, off, off your shirt. I mean, because that's, that's pretty exciting. So I'll, I'll go into it and you guys can see if you can figure it out as, as we go. May 18th, 1917. So we are right smack in, you know, in, uh, in April... 6th of this year, America is going to declare war. And then how are they going to marshal a military force strong enough? And so what they're going to do is actually initiate what's called the draft. And that's a, that's a unique thing, and governments have always struggled with this. Do we force men to fight? And they're going to vote to force men to fight. So if you're over 18, I think it was like 18 to 29 or so at the time, you had to register and submit your, your name, and then they would communicate with you of where you're supposed to show up. And so Congress passes the Selective Services Act, the draft of men in the U.S. Army begins. So history.com says it this way. Oh, so it's 30, sorry guys. Oh, it's ages 21. Boy, I was like way off in my ages. The act required all men in the U.S. between ages of 21 and 30 to register for military service. Within a few months, some 10 million men across the country had registered in response to the military draft. That's a unique thing. Now, for some of us, especially since it's in the past, and we haven't really had a draft uh, for a long time. I think, it's, I don't know if it was Vietnam or World War II. I don't remember when the last draft was. I didn't check into that. But I remember when I was in college and I turned 18 and I had to send in a little registration form. I, didn't, I wasn't too comfortable with that. And then we bombed Libya like the next day. And I, I felt so insecure that I was going to be drafted for something. But what's interesting is if you are of a certain deportment in your spiritual makeup and you would consider yourself a conscientious objector, if you're drafted, back in this time you had no say. And you, you, there wasn't such a thing as a conscientious objector option. Isn't that an interesting thought? And so literally, even if you didn't believe in war, even if you didn't believe in this war, even if you didn't believe that you could ever carry a gun or you thought it was immoral to touch a gun, which there are people that have that conclusion, you have no choice. You would either be court-martialed, and there are serious penalties. I mean, penalties that are extreme, whether it's imprisonment, some people would get shot in certain countries for not accepting the draft. Isn't that an interesting thought to just process through as a young man what that would be like? It's like you either fight for your country or die. <laughs> it's like, oh. So the making of an American hero, his name is Alvin York from Pall Mall, Tennessee. And this guy, it's funny because I, have, I put Grammarly on my computer to see what that was like, and Grammarly didn't really like Alvin York's grammar. Uh, I have a whole bunch, this is like Alvin York's going to tell his own story, but he's from the hills of Tennessee, and I don't think he'd ever been outside the hills of Tennessee, and so his grammar is, is not, <coughs> it, it, well, Grammarly doesn't like it very much, let me just put it that way. I think it's fun. So there's Alvin York. Uh, he is 
quite the character. I really like this man. You know, sometimes, you know, I'll bring someone up. It's like, you know what? I don't know what I think about this guy. This is one of my favorite characters. In fact, one of the first, when, when Hudson and I had a sort of a guy, a man getaway, uh, our first man getaway back when he was 12, we watched Sergeant York. Uh, and that, because, you know, daddy really wants what's in this guy to get into Hudson. Uh, this, is, this is a great man. So the New York Times described Alvin York as the war's biggest hero. General John Pershing, who's literally the top dog of the American military in World War I, called Alvin York the greatest civilian soldier of World War I. So what I want to focus on in this is what I'm going to call the principle of being ready for the test. Now, you guys have something called Always Be Ready Night uh, here at Ellerslie, and that's a, that's a fun tradition. Uh, and it's, it's rather challenging, right, mentally to always be ready, but that's actually such an important discipline in the spiritual life to always be ready. Because have you ever had the thought, like when you, when you watch different characters in history, you say, how would I respond in that situation? This is like, and I don't know if everyone does it as much as I do, but it's just like my daily practice. When, when I study history, that is what I'm doing. It's one of the reasons I like history is to stick myself in it and say, okay, how's Eric gonna respond in this situation? How's Eric gonna respond in this situation? And when I stick myself in Alvin York's shoes, I think, how am I going to respond in this situation? And I really want to respond as Alvin York. And yet, we all feel this frailty, especially in the day of testing. It's interesting because in World War I, what you're going to see is a lot of very well-educated men uh, in, that teach in military schools, teach military science, and they're generals because of this. They've been in the military a long time but have never fought a battle. When it comes to the fighting, they're going to be pathetic. When it comes to leading in fighting, they're not good at it. They're, they have all this head knowledge, but they're not actually good at living out the truth. And I don't want to be one of those Christians that's bookish, that is like the military scientist who sits in my office you know, with my glasses on the end of my nose and thinks wise thoughts, but when the bullets start flying, I hide and I cower. I want to be the sort of man that when the bullets start flying, I rise up and I start marching. It's like, you do know that those are bullets. Yes, and I do know that I'm also shielded in the armor of God. And that's part of what I think makes this story so grand, is you see a man who for all practical purposes was not prepared for war, but was prepared for life. And he was living a life of excellence before he was commissioned into this war that he did not want to fight in. He had no interest in fighting in this war, and yet he was commissioned by his government to fight, and he ends up in a very challenging situation in his conscience. And yet when the bullets start flying, you see a man rise up. So ready for the test. What will you show in the day of proving? Here's our scripture sort of for the, the message. Luke 12, 35, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. So this is the commission from Christ to his followers. This is how they are supposed to await for uh, the returning of the master to the house. And that they are supposed to keep their waist girded and their lamps burning. And so when you look at this spiritually, which we'll unpack in, in a bit, this is the ultimate picture of readiness. This is a constancy where you don't go to sleep. Your master has not yet returned. You wait at the gate and you anticipate his coming. And so there's a readiness of soul that marks the true believer. So when we talk about Alvin York, he was a scandalous, whiskey-guzzling Tennessee sharpshooter. This guy had an uncanny, you could almost say supernatural ability with a gun. And he could just shoot anything. And, you know, he just looks at it and he shoots it. And he just had this ability, but he was a very humble guy. But he had some problems in his life. Let's just put it that way. Obviously, the scandalous, whiskey-guzzling Tennessee sharpshooter doesn't sound like, you know, the most pleasant character. However, look at the line underneath it that has a run-in with Jesus Christ. And so Alvin York is going to come to Christ. And when he comes to Christ, his life is changed. He, like, is a genuine Christian. So in the hills of Tennessee, you have yourself a very, very special man in the making. And he just happens to, in his newfound faith, he feels uncomfortable with taking that gun and shooting someone, and he believes that God says, thou shalt not kill. 
And so he believes very strongly that he shouldn't kill. I mean, do you blame him? I mean, that's a good conclusion, right? And so he's struggling with this uh, because now he has been drafted. And what's a conscientious objector to do? And we call it the paralysis of Alvin York. So I have a whole bunch of, I'm going to basically in Alvin York's own words sort of explain it, which is actually really fun because he's a fun guy to read, even though Grammarly doesn't really appreciate his, his uh, grammar. Long as the records remain, I will be officially known as a conscientious objector. I was. I joined the church. I had taken its creed and had taken it without what you might call reservations. I was not a Sunday Christian. I believed in the Bible, and I tried in my own way to live up to it. No room for the conscientious objector. You either fight for your country or be court-martialed. This is a serious thing. I mean, the penalties for not being willing to fight were very extreme. And so when he is first drafted, he's dealing with this, and all of the fellow soldiers are treating him like he's afraid because he's saying that he's unwilling to fight. And so they're looking at him as the ultimate coward, and he's thinking, I'm anything but a coward, right? And I, I, am I getting a little Tennessee accent going as I, as I do this? Uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not very good at accents, so I'm not sure if we were to uh, ask you what the accent sounds like, you'd probably say, it sounds sort of Indian mixed with Irish. Uh, usually that's where my accents end up. So Alvin York says, my religion and my experience told me not to go to war, and the memory of my ancestors told me to get my gun and go fight. I didn't know what to do. I'm telling you, there was a war going on inside me, and I didn't know which side to lean to. I was a heap bothered. It is the most awful thing when the wishes of your God and your country get mixed up and go against each other. One moment I would make up my mind to follow God, and the next I would hesitate and almost make up my mind to follow Uncle Sam. Then I wouldn't know which to follow or what to do. I wanted to follow both, but I couldn't. They were opposite. I wanted to be a good Christian and a good American, too. Don't you like this guy? This is, this is just the, sort of the way he is, just plain spoken, humble, doesn't think too much of himself, and yet he has a problem. And this is a problem that many of us run into, too. And even over these past couple of years, some of you have run into these same challenges, where the issues of your conscience might dictate a different direction than the issues of your country. That is a real weight to carry because I think if, if you live in America, you understand what I mean when you say we have it good. We are blessed and many of us love our country, if not all of us. We love our country and we want to see our country succeed, but at the same time, we have to love our God first. York's decision. So this was a monumental decision. And of course, I almost want to say that the American government, or the, maybe even the American military, sponsored the movie Sergeant York uh, just to sort of lay the foundation for World War II recruitment. Because Alvin York is going to come to a conclusion that even though he's a conscientious objector, that he can actually stand for God and get this war done with. So if he's after peace, he can bring peace by shutting up those Germans. And so he's actually going to go to fight, even though he's a conscientious objector. And of course, the American government loved his conclusion. So bring peace by stopping the war. Now, by the way, the fact that I say I like this man doesn't necessarily mean that I'm saying that you should do as Alvin York did, okay? That's a delicate issue, and I would never want to press that piece of the storyline, okay? However, if you want to look at this spiritually, which is the way I've looked at this entire series so far, you have a man who has been commissioned to go to battle. And there is going to be a part of you that is going to wrestle with being on the front lines and actually going and engaging an enemy spiritually. And yet every single one of us is being recruited by the King of Kings to go and do business against the enemy. And so for all of us to be willing to say yes is a crucial one. And when God calls on us, we want to be like Alvin York. So November 15, 1917, York is inducted into the U.S. Army. I told my family when I left I was coming back, and I felt I was going to get back safely, and I never did doubt it in the least because I had my assurance that I would return home safely. This man had such a childlike relationship with God. It's actually really neat to study him and to read his writings. He has all these diary writings, and he has a lot of things where he spoke uh, uh, at public events. And uh, I'm guessing, I mean, he just shared his faith everywhere he went, just shared the gospel because everything seems lacquered in his Christian faith. I had never been out of the mountains before, and I'm telling you, I missed them right smart. 
It's pretty flat and sandy country down there in Georgia, and there ain't no strength or seasoning in it. It sure needs hills and mountains most awful bad. So that's when he was arriving at boot camp in Georgia. He just didn't think that much of Georgia. Now, I've been in Georgia, and there's some beautiful spots in Georgia. So I'm not, but I guess compared to the hill country that he was from, it was rather flat. It sure needs hills and mountains most awful bad. April 19th, 1918. Okay, so in March of this year, we have uh, Operation Michael, and Ludendorff is going to strike the Western Front with those extra million troops that he's getting from his Russian campaign that is shut down. And he's going to swing 3,000 guns and a million men into that fray with his stormtroopers as the point. Remember that whole story? And he is going to break through. And it looks like the Germans are going to win this thing. And then the Allies are going to swing back and actually give that counter, which is what the last message was called, the Allied answer. But the Americans are just now heading over there. So they're just starting to arrive. Okay, so that's why I say the Americans, we have to be careful not to give them too much credit because a lot of the other countries lost hundreds and hundreds, if not millions of men, and we're going to <clears throat> lose like 65,000. Okay, and I'm not saying that that's not a big deal uh, to have 65,000 die in a war. That's a big, big deal. However, compared to the expenditure of the other countries, as American... You need to be measured. It's sort of like the, the man needs to be measured in how he talks about the woman's childbirth and how painful it was. It's just like, you know what? You didn't go through it. Don't make any comments. It's like, I could go through that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Just be, just be quiet right now. <laughs> don't say that. I know you're thinking it, but don't say it. And the same thing is true for American troops. What we went through was really hard for us. But comparatively, it's very small next to the other countries that were in it for four years. So April 19th, 1918, headed to France. So uh, Alvin York's going to witness the Western Front for the first time. Let's get his feedback on that. God would never be cruel enough to create a cyclone as terrible as that Argonne battle. Only man would ever think of doing an awful thing like that. It looked like the abomination of desolation must look like. And all through the long night, those big guns flashed and growled just like the lightning and the thunder when it storms in the mountains at home. Don't you love Alvin York? See, you guys are liking him too. I can see it. Uh, October 8th, 1918, the hero rises to the occasion. This is the day, guys. This is when the hero is proven. And so Alvin York is going to surprise everyone uh, because everyone thinks that since he's a conscientious objector, that you know, he's not going to be good with a gun. When they start doing target practice, he beats everyone. And they're like, who are you? I thought you were a conscientious objector. And he's sort of like, just because I don't want to kill doesn't mean I can't shoot a gun. And I mean, the guy is like a marksman, like better than anyone in the military. He just sort of comes from the hills of Tennessee. It's like, where did you come from? Well, he shoots turkeys. You know, he's really good at it. So, I mean, this is such a major event in World War I that there are, I mean, you get all sorts of paintings on this. There are a lot of people that have relived this. Of course, Hollywood made a movie of this exact scene that we're going to walk through. And it's in the Argonne-Muse battle, which is in the counteroffensive, the 100 Days counteroffensive, that we began to talk about in the last message with the Allied answer. But you see the Germans are going to, he's going to hide behind the Germans, but he's actually exposed and they're going to, now I'll give the story, but they're going to sneak behind a, a machine gun nest and try to take it out. But most of his team is going to be shot down. There's only like 19 of them to start or so. I'm get, we'll get the actual data in here. Anytime I give a number, usually it seems to be off from what, I, what it actually was. But he is going to single-handedly pull off one of the most astounding military maneuvers anyone has ever seen. In fact, they did a ton of research afterwards to say, okay, wait a minute, no way that any man could do this. And they're going to actually have teams come in and evaluate it, look at everything, evaluate the story, and try and match it up. I mean, they're looking at bullets and trees, and they're, they're trying to validate this story because it's so fantastical. This is his diary entry on October 8th. Those machine guns were spitting fire and cutting down the undergrowth all around me, something awful. I didn't have time to dodge behind a tree or dive into the, into the brush. I didn't even have time to kneel or lie down. As soon as the machine guns opened fire on me, I began to exchange shots with them. 
In order to sight me or to swing their machine guns on me, the Germans had to show their heads above the trench. And every time I saw a head, I just touched it off. All the time, I kept yelling at them to come down. I didn't want to kill any more than I had to. He's by himself. But it was they or I, and I was giving them the best I had. So this is a literary digest in 1919, sort of like an official report of what happened in the war. And so in June of 1919, this was written. On the morning of October 8, 1918, Corporal York, who is going to become a sergeant after this, was one of a body of 16 men in the, Ar in the Battle of the Argonne who were ordered to put a certain enemy machine guns to put certain enemy machine guns out of action. The guns they were after were on the other side of a slope. To gain their objective, the Americans were forced to climb a hill, exposed a part of the time to enemy fire from other positions. They accomplished this without loss and began to descend on the other side, their object being to advance upon the enemy from the rear. Presently, they found themselves in a cup-like valley among the hills where they spied two Germans ahead of them. One of these surrendered and the other disappeared. Anticipating battle, the detachment went into skirmish order and continued to push forward. Arriving at a small stream, the Americans discovered on the other side some 20 or 30 Germans, among them several officers, who were apparently holding a conference. The Americans fired with the result that the entire body of Germans surrendered. Just as they were on the point of departure with their prisoners, dozens of enemy machine guns hidden on the steep slopes of the hill facing them over 30 yards away, Hill 223, opened up on the American detachment. Captors and captured immediately dropped flat on their stomachs, but not before six Americans had been killed. Three men were wounded, among them the sergeant in command. York and seven privates remained. So he's the highest ranking officer now. So it's him with seven privates. One of these, one, of these one, of these one had taken refuge behind a tree raked on both sides by enemy fire so he could not get away. And the others were guarding the German prisoners. So he has one who's behind a tree and can't move. And then he has, what, six more remaining who are going to guard the German prisoners who are all on the ground right now. Hence, York was left to fight an entire machine gun battalion alone. Aren't you guys into this story? Some of you are wondering why you haven't watched that old black and white movie yet. It's good. Alvin York says, you've never heard such a clatter and racket in all your life. I couldn't see any of our boys. Early and Cutting, those are two names, last names of, of soldiers, had run along toward the left in front of me just before the battle started, but I didn't know where they were. If I'd moved, I'd have been killed in a second. The Germans were what saved me. And the reason that is is because they were, the prisoners were lying in front of them and the Germans wouldn't shoot their own. So as a result, they were shooting over their, his head, but they didn't want to kill their, their own men. I kept up close to them, and so the fellers on the hill had to fire a little high for fear of hitting their own men. The bullets were cracking just over my head, and a lot of twigs fell down. Well, I fired a couple of clips or so. Things were moving pretty lively, so I don't know how many I did shoot. And first thing I knew, a, bo a Bosch, this is the Germans, got up and flung a little bomb at me about the size of a silver dollar. Oh, bless you. It missed and wounded one of the prisoners on the ground. I got the Bosch. Got him square. <laughs> Next thing that happened, a lieutenant rose up from near one of them machine guns, and he had seven men with him. The whole bunch came charging down the hill at me. I had my automatic out by then and let them have it. Got the lieutenant right through the stomach, and he drops and screamed a lot. Then I shot the others. At that distance, I couldn't miss. As soon as the Germans saw the lieutenant drop, most of them quit firing their machine guns, and the battle quieted down. I kept on shooting, but in a minute, here comes the major who had surrendered with the first bunch. I reckon he had done some shooting at us himself because I heard firing from the prisoners, and afterward I found that his pistol was empty. He put his hand on my shoulder like this and said to me in English, don't shoot anymore, and I'll make them surrender. So I said, all right, and he did so, and they did so. So this is from sergeantyork.org. That's a fun website. <laughs> The German major of the prisoners had providentially lived in Chicago for a time and spoke English well. Thus, Alvin was able to give demands that normally would have required a translator. I called for my men, and one of them answered from behind a big oak tree, and the others were on my right in the brush. So I said, let's get these Germans out of here. One of my men said, it is impossible. So there's how many of them? What, eight total? There's seven privates and him. And they have a lot of Germans. Let me just put it that way. It is impossible. So now this German who speaks English hears that. 
So I said, no, let's get them out. So when my man said that, his, this German major said, how many have you got? And I said, I got a plenty, and pointed my pistol at him all the time. <laughs> that is a great line right there for your spiritual life when the enemy's like, how much do you have? I got a plenty. That is like a quote you should stick on your refrigerator. I've got a plenty, Alvin York, and just remember it. Because he is literally going to, well, I don't want to give too much away. But I mean, with seven guys, and everyone else is saying it's impossible, even among the seven. And so he's, he has all the confidence for everyone. So after revisiting the site later that day, so he's going to go back to the site later. He says, I noticed the bushes all around where, where I stood in my fight with the machine guns were all cut down. The bullets went over my head on either side, but they never touched me. So you can see here in this case of mine where God helped me out. I had been living for God and working in the church sometime before I come to the army. So I am witness to the fact that God did help me out of that hard battle. For the bushes were all shut up, shot up all around me and I never got a scratch. So you can see that God will be with you if you will only trust him. And I say that he did save me. Now he will save you if you will only trust him. After the armistice was signed, which is somewhat of a, you know, a spoiler alert, you know, so I, I don't want to say any more about this armistice or who won the World War I. But after the armistice was signed, I was ordered to go back to the scene of my fight with the machine guns. General Lindsay and some other generals went with me. So he has literally generals going with him to this site, and they're evaluating every detail. We went over the ground carefully. The officers spent a right smart amount of time examining the hill and trenches where the machine guns were and measuring and discussing everything. And then General Lindsay asked me to describe the fight to him. And I did. And then he asked me to march him out just like I marched the German, their German major out over the same ground and back to the American lines. Our general was very popular. He was a natural born fighter and he could swear just as awful as he could fight. He could swear most awful bad. And when I marched him back to our old lines, he said to me, York, how did you do it? And I answered him, sir, it is not manpower. A higher power than manpower guided and watched over me and told me what to do. And the general bowed his head and put his hand on my shoulder and solemnly said, York, you're right. There can be no doubt in the world of the fact of the divine power being in that. No other power under heaven could bring a man out of a place like that. Men were killed on both sides of me, and I was the biggest and most exposed of all. Alvin was six foot tall. Over 30, which is big, I guess, back then. I guess I would be big. Isn't that sort of a fun thought to think of Eric being big? <laughs> I've never thought of myself as big, but now, you know, I, after reading that. Over 30 machine guns were maintained rapid fire at me. Could you imagine? Over 30 machine guns aimed at him and not a scratch. Point blank from a range of about 25 yards. He had 30 machine guns aimed at him and they couldn't hit him. The next day found, okay, so this is the official report that came out from the military. The next day found 28 Germans dead. So he killed 28 Germans. Just as many shots Alvin said he had fired, which means every one of his shots killed a German. <laughs> That's like unprecedented. Every bullet he fired had found its target. Practically unassisted, he, Alvin, captured 132 Germans, three of whom were officers, took about 35 machine guns, and killed no less than 25 of the enemy, later found by others on the scene of York's extraordinary exploit. So this is from SergeantYork.org. I know one of your favorite websites. On April 24th at St. Silva, Marshal Falk, who's the well, no, it doesn't say who he is. He's the field marshal of the French. So he's, if you remember the beginning of the series, he, he would be the Joseph Joffre. He's the main guy over the military for the French. Marshal Falk pinned the French... <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm looking for help out there from someone who speaks... What is it? <laughs> and I'm, I'm like twirling my French mustache as I say it. But that's a high honor. That would be uh, like a medal of honor. And called his exploit, listen to this quote from the French field marshal, the greatest thing accomplished by any private soldier of all the armies of Europe. Upon t talking with Alvin, Brigadier General Lindsay said, well, York, I hear you've captured the whole German army. Alvin replied modestly, no, 
I only have 132. <laughs> this man captured 132 Germans. <laughs> With his, with his seven privates. I mean, that is just extraordinary. And everyone in the military is like, what? How do you do that? May 1919, finally back home. I wanted all the time to get back to the mountains where I belonged. I wanted to live the quiet life again and escape from the mad rush of the world. We had done the job we set out to do. And now, like all the other American soldiers, I wanted to get back home. The little old mother and the little mountain girl were waiting. <laughs> Some of you are touched. <laughs> so this is from SergeantYork.org. By May of 1919, Sergeant York was back home. On the 7th of June, he and Gracie, the little mountain girl, were married. However, his quiet life was interrupted by offers for thousands of dollars to commercialize his fame. Listen to this quote, guys. This is Alvin York. If I knew I hadn't been to war, I knew if I hadn't been to war and hadn't been a doughboy, they never would have offered me anything. I also knew I didn't go to war to make a heap or to go on the stage or in the movies. I went over there to help make peace. And there was peace now, so I didn't take their 30 pieces of silver and betray that their old uniform of mine. I just wanted to be left alone to go back to my beginnings. The war was over. I had done my job, and I had done it the best I could. So I figured I ought to be left alone and allowed to go back to the mountains where I belonged. See, isn't this a likable character? This is one of the most unusual characters I've ever seen in history. And I think that's the startling point that most people have when they encounter Sergeant York or Alvin York. It's just like, who is this guy? Well, he's a humble believer. He's a simple man. He's not looking for fame. He's not looking for riches. He wants to live his life simply for Jesus in everything he does. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. I really am moved in studying this man. So I'm going to call it ready like York. This man didn't want to fight. This man didn't have an itch to go over to Europe and to fight a war. He didn't have any desire for this. But if he's in that situation, he's going to be fully in that situation. And he was ready, in a strange way, he was ready to do a hard thing. And there is a desire inside of me, and I'm guessing it also resides in you, that no matter which situation I end up in life, I would be prepared to succeed. Now, you've heard me even this semester mention that I sort of give myself grades on situations where it's just like, all right. And I was telling you about the immovable story where I'm like, you know, I will not be moved. And then this flash flood hits and my basement floods and I was moved. And it sort of bothers me that I can say something vocally about my faith and make a big statement and a big, you know, bluster about it and then fail that very night in my actions. And that really bothers me. It sounds a lot like Peter uh, when he says, I will die with you tonight. And Jesus says, <clears throat> Uh, you will deny me three times before the cock crows. And you see, there is an inerrant weakness that we all share. It's our humanity. And our humanity can bluster and boast and say all sorts of big things to God that we will do for him. And it's very, very important to recognize that all of that is really worthless. You mean well, but there's only one way to live well, and that is in Christ, to rest in him, but then to be ready in his power. And to be ready means to be watchful. And to be watchful means in this scripture that we're going to read, to have your lamp burning and your waist girded. And that's a symbol of readiness to the Jewish mind. So ready like York. Luke 12, 35, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. You see, your lamp is going to help you see it's going to help you see what is coming. It is a symbol of being awake. Your waist girded, which is sort of a funny phrase. My, my grandma's name is Gert. And that's one of the phrases. If your waist is girded, then you are Gert. And it's like awkward because that's my grandma's name, right? And uh, short for Gertrude. And, but they had those long flowing dress-like things. You know, sort of an awkward thing for a guy to wander around town in, right? And yet, it's hard to run in one of those because you could trip over it. And 
So to be ready to run, to be ready for action, you would actually take up all that material and you would wrap it around your waist, under your leg. It's sort of an awkward thing. I can't, I'm not going to demonstrate it. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> and you would knot it in the front. And that actually gave you a position of readiness to now move in any direction. And so one of the things that Jesus is going to say is make sure your lamp is burning and that your waist is girded. That this is actually how you are supposed to live in every situation. Spiritual, the spiritual equation for readiness, GW plus BL equals RFAAE. You guys know what that means, don't you? All right, I'll give you a, an interpretation. Girded waist, that's GW, plus burning lamp, that's the BL, equals RFAAE, ready for anything and everything. We never know what the trial is that is going to hit us. Sergeant York, as we know him, but Alvin York, wouldn't have awakened a couple years earlier when he was coming to Christ and thought, I'm going to be in the battle of the Argonne and the Meuse, and I'm going to be in this situation in a cup-like state where 30 machine guns are firing on me and all the men around me are dead except for seven privates and one's hidden behind a tree and can't move and I have six guys that need to guard the Germans already there and I'm, I'm on my own against 30 machine guns. I mean, that, that isn't a situation that you dream up. And you can't dream up what you're going to be positioned in either. What your challenge is going to be, we don't know. However, that doesn't mean you can't be ready for it. And part of being ready is being girded in your waist and having your lamp burning. And if you have these two principles, if you have these two aspects of your life in order, then you will be ready for the test. Now, I could tell you about times when I haven't been ready, you know, where I like mean well, but then I get caught off guard and, uh, you know, and I don't succeed and I give myself the C and I'm like, oh boy, I know, I know that in Christ I can actually handle those situations better. And I've also had situations where I've been ready and it's actually somewhat of a thrill, to be honest, when you get to a situation and you actually are poised and you're like, all right, eyes wide open, soul ready, we're going to do this thing. That's a lot more pleasant of a feeling. If any of you have ever had a test, like I, I grew up in the public school system, in the public school system, you have tests, right? And I don't know, homeschool, I, you know, I wasn't homeschooled, but you, you have your tests. But like when I look at what my kids have had for their tests, like their math quiz, they're usually quizzes, right? And they're online, and there's no real pressure on them, you know, and if they did bad on it, it doesn't mean they can't just take it again, right? But my entire grade hinged on this test, right? It was always a big pressure thing. And there's two ways to approach a test. If you approach a test unready, tests are miserable. But if you are prepared for a test and you're well-studied for a test and you've been doing the flashcards and you're like, hey, uh, test me on these, and you get them all every time, you even want to brag and you know, hey, come up to people and say, hey, test me on the flashcards. Because you want to show them that you know your stuff. And then you anticipate the test. You want to be tested when you're ready. And that, I just want you to understand that. When you are ready, you want to be tested. And that's an important principle in life. You see, you do not fear a test when you know that you're ready for the test. I remember, you know, when I travel on trips, and we're just about to go on another trip as a family, so this is a good reminder for me. There's certain things that are sensitivity points for me that I have uh, not done so well at, uh, you know, in, when, I, when I'm traveling. And it's funny because my list is fairly defined and my children could give you the list too. And that is overflowing toilets. Okay, when you're in a rental house and the toilet starts to overflow, for whatever reason, I have not responded well to that at times. Okay, and I, it's weird. They're like, get it, get the towels, get it. It's like it stresses me out because I'm thinking of the damage of someone else's house, right? And so, now I wouldn't necessarily like it. Now, maybe you could call it the, you know, when I had six floods in the first year of Ellerslie in my house. Maybe it's a sensitivity. I don't know. But it's a very real thing. Okay, so that's one. All right, let's tag it. And two, when we're like driving, you know, to the location, uh, you know, wherever we're going in the country, and we stop at a hotel, I'm very sensitive to the kids making noise because we're always arriving at like midnight, right? And the kids are always like, hur, 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 making noise as we're walking down the hall. I'm like, shh, shh. 
And so Leslie said to me many times, it's like, I think we need to talk about that. You seem more sensitive to these people in these rooms that you'll never meet again than you do to your family. And it's true. You know, I am so, I'm thinking about all these people in the rooms that I, I don't actually show a tenderness and a care for my family because I just want them to be quiet. Shh. We can't talk as we're walking down the halls. And then my third thing uh, is parking. You know, I have a big Sprinter van, and that is the most miserable thing to, to park sometimes. And I've been in situations where it's very stressful for me, and I can't get out, and I'm, I'm like stuck. And I haven't passed those tests tremendously well, okay? So now, what we did in this one trip, I think we were headed to Orlando this one time. Les and I, on the way out, were praying about uh, praying, and then we actually stopped, and I, I actually began to dissect these things. We just sort of brought them up, and we were laughing. We do laugh a lot about these things. My kids would probably laugh with you, even though there might be a few tears that come out as well. But we all sort of share this common experience, right? It's like, okay, we know when daddy doesn't do so well. <laughs> yeah, there it is, there it is. What, what, what was going on? Oh, it was a parking issue. Yeah, parking, oh! And so I had the, we had this one trip where we started, and we're like, okay, let's actually go in offensively so that I could succeed in these. Well, imagine if I were to succeed in these. Wouldn't that be fun? And we did. We had certain situations where we're going into a parking situation that would have usually triggered me. And guess what? <laughs> I was ready for this, okay? I have grace for this. Now, I don't know that I've ever had the toilet back up, and I've been like, I'm ready for this. <laughs> You have nothing on me. I've totally got this. I, I don't, that one hasn't been tested, and I'm sort of scared that it now might be. However, there is a tremendous power in your life when you can approach these things ready as opposed to already defeated. It's like just a foregone conclusion that you're going to fail. That's just your weak point. Instead of, Lord, make my weak point a place of strength. So I don't know if you're as well examined as I am to know exactly where your pressure points are, but it actually is really good to know where those are so that you can more effectively address them in your soul and say, okay, God, right here. It's like you're studying for a test and light your lamp right there. Gird your waist right there and say, Lord, I want to be excellent in this. I don't want to just say, hey, this is just one of those areas of my life where I fall to pieces. I don't accept any area that is a C or lower grade in my life. I just don't like that. And it's not like I'm happy with a B minus, believe me. However, a B minus is a lot better than a failure, right? I want to aim towards that excellence, but the key isn't in Eric's own gumption. That's one thing I've had to learn. I'm a very disciplined character. I can be very hard on myself. And that really doesn't help either, is just to you know, self-inflict wounds on myself to say, you should have done better. But to actually say, Lord Jesus, you know what? I need some help here. This you know, pile of clay known as Eric Ludy needs the potter. And I need your impetus. I need your ability to do these things. Gert, so there's my grandma's name. I stuck it up on the screen. She spells it different, but it's still sort of fun. This is in honor of my grandma. She's listening. I loved you. Uh, I still do. I don't know. How do you, isn't that a funny thought? You know, I love my grandma, but she's not here. I could still love my grandma, right? Great woman. Yes. Some of you are like, yeah, theologically, yes, you can. I, I love my grandma. She was an amazing woman. Still is, I'm sure. Isn't that a funny statement? It's like, <laughs> yes, she still is. To make tight and strong by binding, to put on, to clothe, to dress, to have it, to furnish, to equip, to surround, to encircle, to enclose, to encompass, to be ready for instant, immediate action. Isn't it interesting that we need to be girt in Christ? In other words, we need to be wrapped and encircled in Christ, tight, strong, and ready. And when we are, we will win the victory. Ephesians 6.14, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Isn't that interesting that we're supposed to tighten around our waist the truth, and that we're supposed to be fortified in that truth, and we will be ready to stand against all the wiles of the evil one. Gird, girt, and girded. You could pick your term. That which must be done to ready a man or a woman for brave exertion. Each of us has been called to, in a sense, showcase an Alvin York-like behavior. You know, it, it's interesting to me to realize, because I, I watched this throughout history, is that some of the greatest heroes in history 
the event that is going to prove them heroic wasn't something that they anticipated. It was something that surprised their soul. And yet, what came out of them was heroic. And that's always intrigued me because the preparations for heroism are not just like, I would like to do a heroic deed, and you look around the room to see a heroic deed, which isn't a bad thing to do, to say, hey, Lord, I want to be used. But it's interesting because you need to allow the Spirit of God to stock your shelves with all that needs to be drawn on in the day of testing. And then when that day of testing comes, what comes out of you is what is inside of you. Just like in the day of testing for Jesus Christ when he was crucified, what comes out of him is a river of blood and water, living water. Blood to the Jew is life, so life water. And what we want when we're tested and our side is pierced is we want to gush living water. Out of our innermost man will flow rivers of living water. And that's exactly what we want to be as Christians with living water stocked inside of us. Father, I ask that you would build within us now that which is necessary to stand in the day of testing, to stand in the day of proving. Lord Jesus, we desire to be your men and women for the hour of need. Lord Jesus, we don't want to fail in the uh, overflowing toilets and in the noise in the hallway of the hotel or in the parking. The small things in my life are in our lives, Lord, I pray that you would sharpen us and refine us, that we would shine in the bigger moments of life. Lord Jesus, we just desire your grace to be applied to our life, that we would shine forth the love and the power and the mercy and the triumph of our King. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.